Let's Be Frank is a podcast centered on interpreting the life of Benjamin Franklin and the times that shaped his thoughts and soul. Some content may not be appropriate for younger audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Greetings and salutations, dear listener. Welcome to another installment of Let's Be Frank, an auditory almanac for the curious mind, with me, your faithful friend and host, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Dear listener, before we get into today's installment, I wish to bid special thank you to George and Linda Ferris for joining our Founders tier of our Patreon Any who wish to join and pledge their devotion to our junto can do so in the show notes below. Now to today's installment. Dear listener, I'm going to reveal something to you. It may entirely shock you to realize, but I'm consistently learning how to do this as I go. I know, I know, you're thinking, Dr. Franklin, you mean to tell me that after 30 years as a successful printer... And with six episodes of a world-shaking, lightning-snatching, revolutionary history podcast under your belt, you aren't perfectly precise and accomplished at the art of podcast production? And I would say, I know, dear listener, I know, I hide it incredibly well. However, holding true to the maxim that what you seem to be, be really, I thought I would begin this installment by confessing to you that today's episode is a complete deviation of what I had intended today's installment to be about. You see, several days ago, an idea struck me that all at once seized my curiosity and led me to completely change what I wished to talk about. And change, dear listener, is good. After all, when you're finished changing, you're finished. Now, don't fret, my beloved Junto. The original topic for today's installment is simply getting delayed to next week's edition, and I think you'll find, serendipitously, it's far more suited to next week. But I simply had to take advantage of the unique circumstances we find ourselves in and build a lesson around it. Because, dear listener, today we're living through history being made. Our dear cousins on the other side of the Atlantic took part in a solemn and ancient rite, the likes of which haven't been seen in 70 years. In a tradition spanning nearly a millennia, they have crowned a new king, and for whatever the future may hold, began a new chapter of British history. This comes at a perfect historic alignment, because just last week we arrived at the 200 and 34th anniversary of what has become the American version of this significant rite, the inauguration of the American presidency. With this happy little alignment, I thought we would stretch the topography of history, looking at this present coronation, this past inauguration, to step back to a coronation of a very different king that I personally attended 262 years ago. So take a breath, dear listener, sit back, and travel with me to your past, my present, and let's begin. 
And for purposes of good order, this podcast is composed of several primary sources associated with Ben Franklin's life, knit together with original writing to collect it all into one narrative on a cohesive theme. Today's episode is about a coronation, an inauguration, and a farmer, and a prince, both by the name of George. Dear listener, I was not always the firebrand revolutionary history remembers me to be. As a matter of fact, when I returned from England in 1775, I was highly suspected by my countrymen on this side of the Atlantic to be sympathetic to the royal authority that every day with its misadministration was drawing us further from the mother country. However, for the majority of my life, I was British, and indeed proud to be so. Now, in 1761, I was enjoying some of the densest weeks of happiness in my life. I had been touring through the Netherlands with my son, William, when we made a swift journey to London to bear witness to what so many in the British Empire would only be able to read about second-hand. The passing of King George II in the previous year had brought forward a new king, a young monarch, with an eye fixed towards the future. Months of planning all culminated on the 22nd of September in the coronation of His Majesty King George III. Now I confess, where I watched the procession is somewhat lost to history. My dear friend, the young Miss Polly Stevenson, sought seats in the galleries of Westminster Hall and Westminster Abbey and in one of the houses or booths erected along the procession. What I do remember is that the cost for even the most meager of accommodations was exorbitant, so it was most likely the latter. Now, my memory isn't good enough to furnish it. And so, the account that we'll use to discuss the coronation of 1761 comes from a letter from one Mr. James Hemmings, as well as the annual chronicle of 1761. It begins, Sir... As the friendship of Mr. Rolls, who had procured me a pass ticket, as they call it, enabled me to be present both in the hall and the abbey, and as I had a fine view of the procession out of doors, I will endeavor to give you as minute an account as I can of all the particulars omitted in the public papers. First, then, conceive to yourself the fronts of the houses in all the streets that could command the least point of view lined with scaffolding, like so many galleries or boxes raised one above the other to the very roofs. These were covered with carpets and cloths of different colors, which presented a pleasant variety to the eye. And if you could consider the brilliant appearance of the spectators who were seated in them, many being richly dressed, you will easily imagine that this was no indifferent part of the show. Can you just imagine me there, dear listener, looking resplendent in my humble mode of dress? Well, he continues, The mob underneath made a pretty contrast to the rest of the company. The gentleman, on looking out to the multitude of crowds that day, said, I can compare to nothing but a pavement of heads and faces. Add to this, that though we had nothing but wet and cloudy weather for some time before, the day cleared up, and the sun shone auspiciously as if it were in compliment to the grand festival. 
Had it rained, half the spectators were so exalted that they could not have seen the procession or ceremony, as a temporary roof put over the platform on account of the uncertainty of the weather was exceedingly low. This roof was covered with a kind of sailcloth, which on orders being given to roll up, an honest jack tar, a sailor, climbed up to the top, stripped it off in a minute or two, whereas the person appointed for that service might have been about it for an hour or more. This gave us not only a more extensive view, but let the light upon every part of the procession. I should tell you that a rank of foot soldiers were placed on each side with the platform, which was an encroachment on the spectators. For at the last coronation I am informed they stood below it, and it was not a little surprising to see the officers in a friendly manner conversing and walking arm in arm with many of them till we were let into the secret that they were gentlemen who would put on the dress of common soldiers. For what purpose, I need not mention. On the outside were stationed at proper distances several parties of horse guards whose horses somewhat incommoded the people that pressed incessantly upon them by their prancing and capering, though luckily I do not hear of any great mischief being done. I must confess it gave me pain to see the soldiers, both horse and foot, obliged most unmercifully to belabor the heads of the mob with their broadswords, bayonets, and muskets but it was not unpleasant to observe several tipping the horse-soldiers slyly from time to time, some with halfpence, some with silver, as they could muster up the cash to let them pass between the horses to get closer. As soon as it was daybreak, for I chose to stay overnight, we diverted with seeing the coaches and chairs of the nobility and gentry passing along with much ado, and several persons, very richly dressed, were obliged to quit their equipages and be escorted by soldiers through the mob. And Mr. Jennings, whom you know, had his chariot broke to pieces, but providentially neither he nor Mrs. Jennings received any injury. My pass ticket, it would have been no service if I had not prevailed upon one of the guards by the irresistible argument of a half a crown to make way for me through the mob to the hall-gate, where I got admittance just as their majesties were seated at the upper end, under magnificent canopies. There seemed to be no small confusion in marshalling the ranks, which is not to be wondered at, considering the length of the cavalcade and the numbers that were to walk, when the king and queen made their way from the palace of St. James to Westminster, they were borne upon sedan chairs, and following behind them all the gentility and nobility and, dear listener, what a procession it was, maids throwing herbs, constables, a fifer, four drums, a drum major, eight trumpeters, more drums, more trumpets, a sergeant with a trumpet, clerks of the chancery, chaplains, sheriff, aldermen below the chair, aldermen above the chair, the king's sergeant at law, the king's attorney general, the king's ancient sergeant. Oh, I, I could go on, but I fear I'm going cross-eyed, and you might well be too. Now in the midst of it all, the new king and queen, all the peers in the procession, wherein their robes of estate, and being knights of the garter, thistle, bath, wore the collars of their respective orders. Jennings continues, 
I shall not attempt to describe the splendor and magnificence of the whole, and words must fall short of their innate joy and satisfaction, which the spectators felt and expressed, especially as their majesties passed by on whose countenance, so dignified, suited their station, tempered with the most amiable complacency. The sermon lasted only fifteen minutes. The king was anointed on the crown of his head, his breast, the palms of his hands. At the very instant the crown was placed on his majesty's head, a fellow, having been placed on the very top of the abbey dome, dropped a flag to signal the park and tower guns to fire. Trumpets sounded, and the abbey echoed with the repeated shouts and acclamations of the people, which on account of the awful silence that had hitherto reigned, had a very striking effect. After some confusion, he goes on to describe the lighting of the candles at Westminster. Conceive to yourself, if you can conceive what I am at a loss to describe, so magnificent a building of Westminster Hall, lighted up with near three thousand wax candles in most splendid branches, our crowned heads and almost the whole nobility with the prime of our gentry most superbly arrayed and adorned with a profusion of the most brilliant jewels, the galleries on every side crowded with company, for the most part elegantly and richly dressed, but to conceive it in all his luster I am conscious that it is absolutely necessary to have been present. Well, it is a rather roundabout way for Mr. Jennings to say, you had to be there, and I hope, dear listener, that with this little account, you can feel in some capacity that you were. Half a millennia of tradition, of precedent, of pomp, of circumstance, of regal opulence, all on display for the whole of a city to receive, I never could have fathomed in that moment that twenty-eight years later, in the city of New York, an independent America would conduct a rite all its own, one with no precedent to inform us. It could be argued that there would be no presidency without George Washington. Indeed, I suspect every drafter in the room of the Constitutional Convention knew for whom the office was being drafted for, and who could be trusted with the weight of so great a responsibility. Now, how he came to occupy this position, I won't go into detail upon. Where our story will pick up is in the morning of April 30th, 1789. While the artillery sounded when the coronation ended in Great Britain, 1761, the morning of Washington's inauguration, 1789, began with the rolling thunder of the cannon's report. All through the morning, the church bells of the city rung out. The procession began at half-past noon. It departed from the residence of the president-elect, uh, the Franklin House. That's a good name, dear listener. With a military parade of five hundred men, horse, artillery, two companies of grenadiers, and a company of Scottish Highlanders in their tartan and regalia, the president-elect himself traveled in a coach of state with ministers of state, and behind him, the people, the citizens of New York. 
While the coronation of George III was held behind closed doors, the admission inhibitive both by cost and status, our president took his oath upon the balcony of the New York State House, so that the greatest number of people of the United States, without distinction, may be witness to the solemnity of the occasion. Uh, Robert Livingston, our mutual friend from the Committee of Five and Chancellor of New York, administered the oath. Samuel Otis, Secretary of the Senate, held the ceremonial Bible, which was a Masonic Bible acquired at the last minute from the Lodge of St. John's. But Washington took the oath with his hand on the Bible and kissed it after the oath was done. From the portico, overlooking wall and broad streets, Livingston turned to the teeming streets below and shouted, Long live George Washington, President of the United States. The new president bowed to the crowd and then retired to the Senate chambers where he would deliver his inaugural address. Now, nervously and nearly inaudibly, Washington would deliver the first sentiments, hopes, and expectations a president would bestow upon the Congress, and by proxy, the people of the United States. This is part of that address. Among the vicissitudes incident to life, no event could have filled me with greater anxieties than that to which the notification was transmitted by your order, and received on the fourteenth day of the present month. On the one hand, I was summoned by my country, whose voice I can never hear but with veneration and love, from a retreat which I had chosen with the fondest predilection, and in my flattering hopes, with an immutable decision as the asylum of my declining years, a retreat which was rendered every day more necessary as well as more dear to me by the addition of habit to inclination and of frequent interruptions in my health to the gradual waste committed on it by time. On the other hand, the magnitude and difficulty of the trust to which the voice of my country called me being sufficient to awaken in the wisest and most experienced of her citizens a distrustful scrutiny into his qualifications could not but overwhelm with despondence one who, inheriting inferior endowments from nature and unpracticed in the duties of civil administration, ought to be peculiarly conscious of his own deficiencies. In this conflict of emotions, it has been my faithful study to collect my duty from a just appreciation of every circumstance by which it might be affected. All I dare hope is that, if in executing this task, I have been too much swayed by the grateful remembrances of former instances, or by an affectionate sensibility to this transcendent proof of the confidence of my fellow citizens, and have thence too little consulted my incapacity as well as disinclination for the weighty and untried cares before me, my error will be palliated by the motives which mislead me, and its consequences be judged by my country with some share of the partiality in which they originated. Now, what followed was an evening of celebration, fireworks, dances, and levees. At the conclusion of the evening, Washington steps upon his carriage to return to his residence. Only the crowds upon the street make it impossible for them to move. Those within the carriage disembark, and tired, 
with the weight of a nation upon his shoulders, our first president walks home. Perhaps, dear listener, you looked to the coronation this past Saturday with a similar wonder. Perhaps you've beheld countless occasions of pomp, circumstance, addresses, perhaps in the noise of the present. It all bleeds together, and forethought becomes hazy to the moments where we breathe through history. But in hindsight, what a wonder it is to live through times like these. And in that, somewhere, my friends, is the lesson for today's installment. When we squint, the various distinctions that separate us begin to blur. It's a consistency of mankind to find tradition, to yearn to be a part of something bigger, to play the spectator to great events, and when we are lucky enough, to be the participants in them. And indeed, dear listener, I think with this installment comes a challenge, and one that I am confident you can rise to in this case. Today, tomorrow, and from hereafter, find the history of your time. And my beloved Junto, play a part in it, and play that part well. Leave a good story that's worth telling one day. And that's all for today's installment. Would that we had more hours in the day, but as always, we have nothing but time between us. As we close... I hope I may again offer this solicitation. We here at Let's Be Frank are always looking for opportunities to travel. Franklin visited two continents and countless states in his lifetime, and here, in 2023, he wants to visit you. If you wish for a live presentation with the good doctor at your theater, your school, your event, simply write to the email inquiries at bfranklinlive.com and my associates will make good to set up an appointment post-haste. Resources and images from this week's episode can be found in the journal at www.bfranklinlive.com. If you like the show, subscribe and stay up to date with all the latest gossip and news, and do me the kindness of leaving a review. You can follow us on Instagram at bfranklinlive, and, dear listener, spread the word. Tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your horse, I don't care. Let's make our intellectual junto grow. And now, dear listeners, our time together must come to an end. Fare thee well. And always remember, when you're good to others, you are best to yourself. Until we meet again, I remain your humble and obedient servant, Dr. Benjamin Franklin, printer. Stay curious, my friends. <laughs>